the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This podcast is brought to you by Dr. Kirk Elliott, PhD, in an uncertain economy. If you're looking for wealth management solutions and financial advice, go to KirkElliottPhD.com and make an appointment today. Coming up, have you heard about the five-year-old kid accused of wearing blackface? I'll come to his defense I'll consider new evidence in the Trump New York case that vindicates Trump's evaluation of his business assets. And author Ben Stein joins me. We're going to talk about one of the strangest and most fascinating men to occupy the Oval Office, Richard M. Nixon. Hey, if you're watching on Rumble or listening on Apple, Google, or Spotify, please subscribe to my channel. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. Times are crazy. In a time of confusion, division, and lies, we need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. I want to talk about the five-year-old kid who was accused of wearing blackface at a game of the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, there was an article in a publication called Deadspin, Deadspin, and uh, it was written by, the post was written by this guy named Karen, C-A-R-R-O-N, Karen Phillips. I look up uh, his profile. He is apparently a Pulitzer nominee. He is, uh, he's had some awards, Journalist of the Year. He used to work for the New York Daily News. So this is actually a pretty accomplished or at least um, established journalist. And you have to ask, why would a journalist go after a five-year-old kid? Well, apparently he spotted this five-year-old kid in the game. And if you look at his post about it, what he does is he shows the kid from the side. You can kind of see one side of the boy's profile and it is painted on one side black. And so looking at it only from the profile side, it's like, wow, you got a kid in blackface, and presumably this is not the fault of the kid, but maybe the parents did this. Or So the post that Karen Phillips puts out basically is uh, saying uh, that the NFL needs to speak out against this, the NFL needs to step in because you've got a kid in blackface at a Kansas City Chiefs game. Now, what makes all of this so deceptive and insidious is that the moment the kid turns his face, in other words, when you look at the full picture, you don't look at the distorted or half picture that was presented in Karen Phillips's post, but you look at the kid, you see that the kid has, well, here it is. Take a look if you're watching this, uh, the podcast uh, in video, you can see what it is. He's got the right side of his face is painted black. And the left side of his face is painted red. And he's wearing an Indian headdress. In other words, 
This is, in fact, these are the colors of the Kansas City Chiefs. So the kid is nothing more than a fan. And while he's there, even more interesting, he does the Kansas City Chiefs kind of chopping sign, which I guess is the, is the, let's defeat the other side, let's chop them. So he does the tomahawk chop. And guess what? When you're looking at the video of it, it's very interesting because you see some of the Kansas City Chief players, in fact, Bob Black players, and they look up at the kid and they see him doing the chop sign. And so they do the chop sign. So in other words, they're familiar with the kid. They see what he's doing. They approve of it. He's wearing the Kansas City colors and they kind of join him in doing this tomahawk chop sign. Absolutely benign, not a hint of racism. And, um, and then, uh, and this is what happens these days on, on X, on Twitter, is that people start looking up. They look up the kid because they're like, is this kid really a racist? Is it, are his parents really racist? Well, it turns out that the kid is a Native American. It turns out that he belongs to the Chumash tribe. His dad is on the board of the Chumash tribe in Santa Ines. And so this is a completely benign incident that is being twisted, but twisted deliberately. And you have to say deliberately. Why? Because because when you go to the partial photo, you get it. Obviously, Caron Phillips saw the full photo. He could see the kid. He could see, now this kid is wearing, he's in the Kansas City colors. But guess what? If I shoot him from one side, I get only the black face. And so this appears to be a very malicious act by an influential publication and an influential journalist against a five-year-old kid. Now, to me, this is a worse slander than happened. Remember that kid at Georgetown, you know, who was approached and they acted like he was somehow a racist and they were beating the drums and all this stuff. And he won a big settlement because he filed a lawsuit. And this is really what I think this kid's parents need to do. They need to get a good lawyer and they need to file a massive defamation suit against Caron Phillips and against Deadspin because uh, this talk about putting out something that could ruin a kid's life, right? It could ruin a kid's life because imagine at the age of five being portrayed as some kind of, you know, racist in the making uh, because you wore supposedly blackface, except you didn't, to a game. I think that any jury, and I even think that a, a jury of people of different political views will look at this and go, this is really a kind of child abuse. It's it's the kind of, it shows the callousness of modern journalism. And I'm looking at this Caron Phillips guy, I'm looking at his profile, and he's kind of smiling from ear to ear. But this is what we get these days. We get people who put on a smile, but they act in a vicious manner. I mean, didn't this guy think, well, whatever the kid did. Uh, he's five. And so does it really make sense to blast his image all over social media and, and use one of the most kind of vile smears that you can use against somebody that clearly can't be applicable to him no matter what he did? The kid in that sense at five is going to be innocent no matter what he did. Uh, I mean, he could be saying Heil Hitler uh, and he would still be a five-year-old. So imagine what comprehension would a five-year-old have of what Hitler did or anything, of anything for that matter. So the innocence of a five-year-old is pres- is presumed. It's the presumptive starting point. This is why I'd like to see uh, Deadspin and Caron Phillips really be held accountable for this clear libel. 
During times of economic uncertainty and political upheaval, it's crucial to have a reliable source of financial guidance and insight. That's where Dr. Kirk Elliott, PhD, and his esteemed wealth management advisory firm come into play. Dr. Elliott has distinguished himself with two PhDs in economics and theology. He's built a reputation in expert financial solutions tailored to your unique needs. His firm specializes in wealth management, offering a comprehensive array of services to protect and grow your assets in an ever-changing world. In an environment filled with economic volatility and shifting political landscapes, finding a trusted partner during these challenges is essential. Dr. Elliott's firm employs cutting-edge strategies and an understanding of markets to guide you toward financial success. Go to KirkElliottPhD.com. That's KirkElliott, two L's, two T's, KirkElliottPhD.com slash Dinesh. Book an appointment and they will walk you through their investment process. That's KirkElliottPhD.com slash Dinesh, or you can call or text 720-605-3900. Once again, 720-605-3900. Donald Trump, as you know, is in a show trial in New York. And I say a show trial because it is a trial whose outcome is already known. The judge, an extreme leftist, he, um, what is it, Engoron, is that the guy's name? It rhymes with moron. And then even this guy has already decided that Trump inflated the value of his assets. And yet the trial kind of, it's almost like one of those things where it's, it's plodding on, even though the judge has already said what his conclusion is going to be. Now, that's not the final word because there'll be an appeal. And so I think this charade, I hope, will be shut down, if not at the appellate level and certainly at the Supreme Court level. But nevertheless, here we have this trial. And it turns out Trump is putting on a really strong defense, except there's a sense of futility, at least for me, because it doesn't seem to really matter. The judge has already made up his mind. He's already said he's made up his mind. And yet, if you listen to the facts of the case, it's quite obvious that the judge is in a kind of la-la land. The judge is paying no attention to facts. So, Trump, the Trump people brought out a witness. And this is the executive of Deutsche Bank. His name is David Williams. And think about it. This is a guy who made the loans, or at least one of the key banks that made loans to the Trump organization. And he was asked a series of very telling questions about those loans. Uh, question number one, did the Trump organization have a strong enough balance sheet to justify the loans? And he replies, quote, the Trump had, quote, one of the strongest balance sheets we have seen and totally unlike any of our major redeveloper clients. A lot of the redevelopers are deep in debt, but Trump had tremendous assets that he was able to show. So this guy's saying that compared to others, Trump's assets were better. They were stronger. And so that's, of course, what banks are looking for. Number two, uh, Mr. Williams was asked, did Trump ever default on any of the loans? Did he not pay back? And the guy goes, absolutely not. He uh, never defaulted on the loans. The loans are all paid back. So no one, the point being, no one has been injured by this supposed inflation of Trump's assets. Trump got the loans. He paid back the loans. Then he was asked, um, do banks merely rely on Trump's assertions to decide whether or not he has sufficient 
collateral assets. So if Trump says, for example, that Mar-a-Lago is worth, let's just say, for example, $50 million, I'm just making these numbers up, does the bank just go, oh, you're saying it's worth $50 million, so it must be worth $50 million. so here, we can make you a loan for X amount of money based upon the collateral of Mar-a-Lago. And Mr. Williams goes, absolutely not. We, the banks, do our own assessment of what these assets are worth. We don't just rely on the client's statement of what they think they're worth. We have our own appraisers, we have our own evaluators, and so... The point being, where is the fraud? Banks are big boys. We're not talking about Trump here, you know, trying to swindle some guy who's only worth, you know, $10,000. No, the banks have giant resources. They have whole teams that go out and make these sorts of assessments. So it bolsters the Trump organization's claim that banks do their own due diligence before making loans. Uh, quote, it is not unusual or atypical for any client uh, to provide financial statements to be adjusted to this level, to this extent. In other words, the guy saying, yeah, there's some legitimate debate about whether this asset is worth a little bit more, a little bit less. Maybe Trump thinks it's worth more. Somebody else thinks it's worth less. That's perfectly normal. We're talking about assets like the old post office, the Doral Golf Resort and Spa, the Trump International Hotel and Tower in Chicago. And the the guy goes on to say what I think everybody in the financial business knows that there is no fixed number that you can put as to the value of something like that. Let's take the let's take Mar-a-Lago as an example. What is the actual value of Mar-a-Lago? Turns out no one exactly knows. In fact, this is the game that real estate people play when they're trying to sell something. They look at comps, they look at things that are around uh, nearby. They decide, okay, well, if you want to go for a little longer or a little higher value to sell your property, it may take longer to sell. Uh, you have to find the right buyer who absolutely loves this property. Otherwise, you'd do well to sell it for a little bit less. So clearly, the value of real estate assets is a little subjective. So given all of this, the idea that Trump is committing some known fraud is absurd. It's preposterous. In fact, the fraud is coming from New York. It's the fraud of Letitia James. It's the fraud of this partisan hack judge, uh, Engeron. So once again, we have a, a teaming up of a wicked and corrupt prosecutor who had campaigned, by the way, on gay- sticking it to Trump. And she's found a pliant judge, a like-minded judge, a judge coming from the same team, which is the left, the Democrats. And it almost doesn't matter. Trump is putting on a case. He's got good witnesses. He's showing that the whole thing is ridiculous. He's got the banks that actually made the loan saying, no, we weren't cheated. We weren't fooled. We have our own appraisers. The loans got paid back. And yet in the end, as far as this particular courtroom is concerned, none of this appears to matter. Here's an idea to consider. Diversify your savings with physical precious metals while stockpiling silver in your home safe. It's Birch Gold Group's most popular special of the year now through December 22nd. For every $5,000 you spend with Birch Gold, they'll send you a one-ounce silver eagle coin for free. Text to Nash to 989898 to claim your eligibility now. You can purchase gold and silver and have it shipped directly to your home or have Birch Gold's precious metals specialists help you convert an existing IRA of 401k into an IRA 
tax-sheltered in gold for no money out of pocket, and they'll send you your free silver for every $5,000 you purchase. Keep it for yourself or give something with real value as a stocking stuffer this year. Just text the keyword Dinesh to 989898. Claim your eligibility. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, including me, now's the best time to buy gold from Birch Gold. Text Dinesh to 989898. Claim your eligibility for free silver on qualifying purchases before December 22nd. There's an important case that is before the Supreme Court, came before the Supreme Court, that will not be decided until next spring, but the arguments and the hearing is now. And it is a case that on the surface appears pretty technical and pretty um, focused. It's, it, re- it deals with one agency of the U.S. government, the so-called SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. But the ramifications of the case are pretty big. They're pretty wide. Of course, how widely the ramifications end up being depends upon what the court says. The court can decide we're making a decision for this case and this agency alone, or the courts could say, guess what? We are noticing here that these federal agencies, which supposedly have delegated power from Congress to deal with particular areas, like this is, we're dealing with labor relations, we're dealing with uh, consumer protection, we're dealing with finances. These agencies are out of control. They've become lawmaking bodies in their own right. They have departed from the the focus of what Congress delegated them to do. They're now acting like somebody elected them, even though no one did. And they are uh, then not only that, but they have set up their own internal courts. I mean, think about that. Uh, you cannot actually fight these agencies because you can't go to court because the agency has its own court. And so whether it's whether it's a wetland and they're like, we are we're going to take your property because it's, uh, you know, it's a wetland. You can't build on that property. You're like, OK, let's go before a judge and see what he says or she says. And it turns out you can't because they're like, yeah, you can come before a judge. But it's a judge who's actually an employee of our agency. They're going to hear your case and they're going to decide. Well, I think we can see that the administrative state is way out of control now. It started getting out of control almost a 100 years ago, starting in the FDR period. It then got wildly out of control under LBJ. This is a problem that has been going on for many, many decades. And the question is whether a conservative Supreme Court that does want our structure of government to be aligned with the Constitution and does want the delegation of powers to be in line with what the Constitution says and allows, Will the Supreme Court kind of come in and sort of um, deliver, corral these agencies and say, listen, you have gone way too far. This is what I'm actually hoping for. So let's look at this particular case. It involves the SEC. And the SEC uh, brought this guy named George Jarkesi. They, they accused him of, of securities fraud. And the details of the case are not important, but essentially an SEC administrative law judge said, oh yeah, this guy's guilty, he violated the Securities Act, he's got to pay a penalty of $300,000 and repay 685000 so about a million dollars total, and he also is barred from taking part in various security industry activities, uh, including serving as an investment advisor. So this guy, Jarkezi, has now challenged the proceedings, basically saying they violate the Constitution, 
and he won in the Fifth Circuit. That's how it's now going up to the Supreme Court. And the Federal Appeals Court basically decided in, in Jarchese's favor on three separate counts. It said, first of all, this guy has the right to go before a civil judge and jury. In other words, the administrative agency, which has obviously got its own biases, can't set up its own court. Hey, listen, our court, you know, it's kind of like, it's just so crazy. If somebody sues D'Souza Media, hey, listen, you can't go to court. We at D'Souza Media have our own court, Chief Justice Deborah D'Souza. She'll be hearing your case and deciding on them. I mean, this is what's going on with the government. It's preposterous. It's absurd. Uh, But moreover... Uh, the court also said that the idea that these administrative judges uh, can only be removed from their position by, quote, good cause. The court goes, wait a minute, good cause? These agencies are an extension of the executive branch of the government. In that sense, they're under the president. So let's say the president decides, I'm going to fire that guy. I don't need good cause. In fact, I don't need any cause at all. If I'm the president, I am the boss. I have the authority to fire people who are inside the executive branch of the government, answerable and accountable to me. So what's great about this case is it's going before the Supreme Court, but it could affect the Federal Trade Commission, the National Labor Relations Board, so many other administrative agencies. These are, by the way, the favorites of the left. They're the favorites of the left because these are agencies that are not under direct supervision of anybody. They have, they make their own rules and they actually claim, Congress, you stay out of it because you don't actually have the expertise in deciding what is a wetland. That's our expertise. We've got various scientists and advisors and, you know, climatologists and they'll tell us what a wetlands really is. That's our job, not yours. And then similarly, if there's a dispute, no, no, it's very complex. You don't really understand the issues involved. We can't go before a normal judge or jury. We need to have our own specialist jurors or our own specialist judges who are going to make that determination. This is all deeply undemocratic and even anti-democratic. And so the Supreme Court is in the very interesting position of having an unelected branch of government, SCOTUS, ultimately trying to put democratic accountability back in its place. Christmas is coming up, and I can't think of a gift that's better to give yourself than feeling good again. Hey, it's even better than getting a new car. So here's an idea, Relief Factor. It's the gift that helps people relieve pain and feel good once again. Relief Factor is a daily supplement. It helps your body fight back against pain. It's 100% drug-free. Relief Factor was developed by doctors searching for a better alternative for pain. Relief Factor uses a unique formula of natural ingredients like turmeric and omega-3s to help reduce or eliminate the everyday aches and pains you're experiencing. Whether it's neck, back, joint, or muscle pain, Relief Factor can help you feel better. Unlike pills that simply mask your pain for a short time, Relief Factor helps support your body's natural response to inflammation so you'll feel better all day, every day. See how Relief Factor can help you with their three-week quick start kit. It's only $19.95 and it comes with Relief Factor's feel better or your money back guarantee. So why not give it a try? Visit relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF. The number again, 800-4-RELIEF or go to relieffactor.com. When you feel the difference, you know it works. Guys, I'm really delighted to welcome to the podcast the, well, the one and only uh, Ben Stein. And uh, this is a man who has done so many things. I don't even know where to begin with an introduction. He is an economist. He is an author. 
He is an actor. He was a um, an award-winning Comedy Central game show host, Win Ben Stein's Money. You might have seen him in Forrest Bueller's Day Off. Ferris um, Bueller's Day Off. Oh, Ferris Bueller's, Ferris Day, Bueller's Day, Off. Day Off. That's right. Yeah, the most successful youth comedy of all time. So there you are. And and and, you, and your role I've, extremely <laughs> memorable in that. I've got to say. Um, yes. And now you've written a book. Uh, it is The Peacemaker. It's about Richard Nixon. Uh, your website is Mr. Ben Stein. I like this. Mr. Ben Stein. MR. Mr. Ben Stein dot com. Um, ben, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, great to have My you. Great pleasure, Dinesh. My and pleasure, um, you have written a book about, I think, uh, perhaps the most uh, elusive and mysterious uh, and yet fascinating of men, uh, Richard Nixon. L- let me just say by way of introduction that shortly after I graduated from Dartmouth, a bunch of us got together and we decided who would be the most interesting man that we could sit down and have breakfast with. We had a small group called the Dartmouth Breakfast Club and we go, let our imaginations go wild. In other words, there's no limits. We had, I think we had Pope John Paul II on that list. I think we had Gorbachev. We might have had Reagan on the list and yet the winner. And, 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 and by quite a bit. Hands down, Nixon. Was Nixon. Because we all said that it would really be wonderful to get a little window into the mind and personality of Richard Nixon. Well, you have had that window. You have written a really riveting book about Nixon. So let's just begin by talking. A lot of people know about Nixon, but I don't think people have much of an idea of who Richard Nixon was. So as someone who regards Nixon as a friend, in fact, as someone who just put on his Nixon tie right before this podcast, who was Richard Nixon? He was a peace banker. He was a man who believed that, uh, above all, his goal was to make peace and to bequeath to the United States of America and its great people the title, a job, the gift of a generation of peace. And that is a hell of a gift. And uh, theres I don't think there's anyone who's done anything quite like that. Uh, he was doing that while he was being cursed at, spit at, treated like dirt by the uh, Bolshevik left there in America, which is uh, very, very, very much a dominant part of the media scene. And uh, he was a hero. He was a hero. And as a Jew, I can tell you, he saved Eretz Israel uh from the russians and the, their their evil disgusting ilk and uh he's uh he's my hero he's like he, who, who is he that he's my hero ben let's put this in context a little bit because people often forget that the 19th century was littered with bloody wars across europe and of course we had the horrible civil war in the united states a very bloody war um, and then the 20th century, there were two massive wars in the first half of the 20th century, World War I, and then, of course, World War II. Uh, and so after World War II, the period between from the 1950s, I would say all the way to now, has been somewhat anomalous in that all of us have lived most of our life, or in fact, some cases all of our life, in peace. And that is not it's been a miracle, it's right? A miracle. It's not the norm. That's the point. And and you're saying that a key architect of that piece was Richard Milhouse Nixon. Yeah, no doubt about it. And uh, 
especially for the United States of America, uh, which is to me the world. Uh, he was the savior of peace. He, he was the prince of peace. I mean, that's, I know what people call Christ, but to, to me, Nixon was the prince of peace. His mother was a Quaker and she was a Quaker. She used to tell him that peace was the greatest of all gifts and that uh, the best thing he could do with his life, if he achieved high office, which I guess she thought he would, and he certainly did, uh, would be to leave to the people of America a generation of peace. And that's a hell of a gift. And he did that in very large measure by standing up to the Russians and by standing up to what were then the terrorists in uh, the Middle East. And it's, it's an astonishing thing that he could have done that while he was being reviled, treated like dirt by the vicious media, which is still vicious about Nixon. And uh, he was a great, a great man to be able to do this while being uh, dumped on. It was incredible, just incredible. We'll be right back with Ben Stein, author of The Peacemaker, the website, MrMRBenStein.com. Debbie and I are on a really good health journey, but we still struggle to eat enough fruits, veggies, and fiber, and those are a requirement. Now, lucky for us, we discovered Balance of Nature. What better way to get all your fruits and veggies plus fiber than with Balance of Nature? This is Balance of Nature's fruits and veggies in a capsule, easy to take, made from fresh whole produce. The produce is powdered after an advanced vacuum cold process, which stabilizes the maximum nutrient content. And this is Balance of Nature's Fiber and Spice, a proprietary blend of fiber and 12 spices for overall and digestive health. Join Debbie and me, start your journey to better health right now. Call 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com. You get 35% off your first preferred order by using discount code AMERICA. Again, it's balanceofnature.com or call 800-246-8751. Get 35% off your first preferred order by using discount code AMERICA. I'm back with the one and only uh, Ben Stein, author of The Peacemaker. Ben, when I think about Nixon and peace, I think about sort of three different vectors of conflict that Nixon was involved in uh, adjudicating and maybe helping to dispel. One, of course, is the uh, was the 1973 war involving Israel. Uh, one was the uh, the Cold War involving the Soviet Union, but there and was China. also China, right? Exactly. So we have Nixon in China, Nixon and the Soviets, Nixon and Israel. Why don't we talk for a moment about each of those to italicize what was Nixon's accomplishment? Let's start with China. What did Nixon accomplish, and and why regarding China? Nixon had achieved uh, reconnecting with China. Uh, China had been ostracized, kicked out, uh, treated badly by the United States since they uh, beat uh, Chiang Kai-shek and took over almost all of China. And uh, Nixon said, uh, "This this isn't going to work. This isn't doing. This is not doing anyone any good." And uh, so he uh, he renewed relations with China, and uh, he in so doing he isolated Russia. He made sure that Russia was the only country that was surrounded mostly, not entirely, by uh, hostile communist countries. And he, by so, in so doing, he said to the Russians, basically, you cannot win the Cold War. You cannot win the Cold War. If we have China 
and the U.S. together and you versus NATO, you can't win. You can't win. You might as well just give it up. There's no, just make peace and make, make friends. And, and it works incredibly, unbelievably well. I mean, the Russians are not idiots and uh, they realized they had been, uh, outdone by Nixon's diplomacy. And, and he, he was a, that's the kind of interesting thing. People call him Tricky Dick. People call him names of all kinds, but he was essentially a diplomat and a peacemaker. This is the amazing, what other president has ever done that? What other president has ever stood up to the forces of history? And there's a famous saying about, about, I'm sure you know better than I do, about William F. Buckley standing up to the train of history and saying, stop. I'm sure you know that very well. And uh, I think think Nixon did that better than anyone else has said, uh, communism, you're not going to beat us. Bolshevism, you're not going to beat us. Uh, war, you're not going to beat us. Uh, we're going to stand up and we're going to stand up not to conquer Europe, not to conquer Asia, but to bequeath peace. And that, that's a very, very big, noble gift. What do you think, Ben? It was Margaret Thatcher who said that Reagan won the Cold War without firing a shot. As you know, the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, right after Reagan's tenure. Uh, the Soviet Union, of course, collapsed under George H.W. Bush. Uh, do you see a, a kind of continuity of, of, of strategy and policy between, uh, Nixon and Reagan? It seemed at the time that there were some important differences between the two, but are you saying that with the larger vantage point of history, Reagan was continuing in the Nixonian path? Well, I would say not the larger, the longer point of view of history. As long as we had a long train running saying to the Russians, just forget about it. You're not going to win. And as long as we had the incredible technological breakthrough of the internet, which allowed Russians to get news about the rest of the world, limited to be sure by our standards, uh, the Russians were told, behave yourselves. You might be able to make something of yourselves. You have all those great looking girls. So you have big start in that regard. And, uh, you're, uh, why not? Why not make peace? What do you have to lose by making peace? And then, unfortunately, after Nixon entered immortality, uh, the Democrats took over in large measure in the making of foreign policy in the United States. And uh, the, the Democrats did not understand about standing up to Russia and to Bolshevism. And uh, that, that was a disaster. And by the way, I, I look at my old uh, next-door neighbor, Carl Bernstein, wonderful next-door neighbor, charming fellow, great guitarist, and his partner in crime, Bob Woodward. And I think to myself, if they had not done evil deeds they had done, there would have been no Cambodian genocide. And Nixon would never have allowed a Cambodian genocide. Uh, Ford, unfortunately, did. But Nixon would not have. And Nixon valued life. We'll be right back with Ben Stein, author of The Peacemaker, the website Mr. Mr. Benstein.com. Mike Lindell just keeps on introducing great deals. He's featuring the all-new MyPillow My Towels. 
Save 50% off on the six-piece tile set, regular price $59.96, but now, for a limited time, only $29.98 with promo code Dinesh. Debbie and I have Mike's My Towels all over the house. We love them for ourselves. We also like giving them away as Christmas presents. Idea for you to consider. My Towels six-piece set includes two bath towels, two hand towels, two washcloths. The towels are really amazing. The long staple length of the Sherpa cotton fibers makes them very soft. Because of the long fibers, they can wrap around each other more easily, creating a smoother and softer fabric. Soft to the touch, but without the lotion-y feel and also very absorbent. So take advantage of the 50% off on the six-piece towel set. Call 800-876-0227. Again, 800-876-0227. Or go to MyPillow.com. Don't forget to use the promo code D-I-N-E-S-H Dinesh. I'm back with uh, actor and lawyer and economics teacher and best-selling author and um, game show host uh, and uh, the book The Peacemaker by Ben Stein. The website, MrMRBenStein.com. Ben, you mentioned um, that if if Nixon had not been done in by Watergate, maybe the Cambodian genocide could have been averted. And of course, I think the other uh, malign effect of Watergate, of course, was the Republicans took a tremendous beating uh, in the 74 midterm elections and then Carter sweeps in in 76. So here we have another gift of the Democrats, of course, put the word gift in quote marks, which is the the U.S. pulling out the Persian rug from the Shah and giving us the Ayatollah Khomeini. And who would have thought, you know, here, 40 years later, that Iran, the Iran Iranian revolution would be consolidated, would be a way of life for a whole generation of Iranians and would be the the launching pad of Islamic radicalism, not just in that region, but in some respect in the world. Well, launching pad is a terrifying word, my friend, Dinesh, because who would have dreamed when we, you're too young to remember this, when we saw these uh, carloads, truckloads of screaming Iranian kids riding through Washington calling for the disposal of the Shah, that the next thing we're going to see would be a nuclear-armed Iran threatening the United States of America. Who would have dreamed that these punks would have been a powerful nuclear threat to the United States and to the world? There's not going to be any peaceful world if uh, Iran gets the nuclear bomb. And they probably already, actually, are probably very, very close to it. Maybe, maybe they have it already. A very smart friend of mine, whom I'm sure you know already, a, a girl who used to work at the Spectator, uh, Marina Milanek, said a very smart thing a long time ago. I said to, her, said to her, what happens when Iran gets the nuclear bomb? She's a terribly, terribly intelligent young woman. And she said, Iran becomes a glass parking lot. And maybe that's true and maybe not, but uh, we don't want Iran to have the bomb. Mr. Nixon was approached by the Shah. The Shah said, and Mr. Nixon, don't let the don't let the radicals take over. Then Ford was approached by the Shah, and, and Ford and his friends said, "Put up machine guns and just shoot them down as they come down the street." It would have been a good idea. It's a hor- horrible thing to say to murder people, but it's a horrible thing to think of a state founded on murder and genocide being one of the most powerful countries in the world. That is a horror show. Yeah, I mean, and certainly the mullahs, despite all their clerical robes and so on, did not, well, were not uh, too squeamish to unleash a kind of orgy of terror inside of Iran the moment the Shah, yeah, the, the Shah the was. The moment, absolutely. 
especially against us Jews. I mean, Iran used to have a lot of Jews. Now they all live near me in Beverly Hills. But there, he had no hesitation about killing people solely because they were Jewish. Nobody ever talks about that anymore. Nobody ever talks about the genocide of the Iranian revolutionaries against the Jews. That's a real thing. It really happened. Nixon would not have let it happen. Ben, um, the uh, Kissinger just died, of course. And uh, I was just thinking back, this was many years ago, reading Kissinger's memoirs, which were fascinating about Kissinger, but also fascinating as a window into Nixon. And I think what really struck me reading those memoirs, and I haven't read them all, is the uh, kind of the urbanity of Kissinger, the urbanity of Nixon, their intellectual sophistication, the fact that these were people who studied strategy, they knew who Disraeli was, they read books, they studied Sun Tzu, they talked at this level, and it appears that this whole realm of discourse has just absolutely and vanished from American politics vanished. on both sides. It's vanished from America on both sides. I mean... The American college student is really a disgrace to humanity. The American students, even in graduate school, are a disgrace to humanity. Sir, could you have... I went to Columbia as an undergrad, Yale as a, as a, as a law student, and economics. Could you have imagined demonstrations in favor of killing Jews at these elite universities? Could you have imagined it? And yet, it's happening... I don't think uh, Nixon would have, he couldn't have stopped it, but I think he would have approached it at a level which made people realize that they're being done in by their own children. I mean, both Nixon and Reagan were, of course, familiar with the the activism of the 60s. But it seems like in their own way, they developed a very effective way, not only to counter it, Reagan, of course, in California, uh, and Nixon while he was president, but they were able to turn it to their political advantage by saying to the American people, hey, listen, we don't want chaos in our streets. We don't want these bearded lunatics telling us what to do. They don't even, they can't even run their own lives. How are they going to run the country? Absolutely right, and it's interesting. I imagine you know very, very well about how when there was a tremendous anti-war demonstration in Washington, D.C., there was a crowd of uh, demonstrators, I probably was one of them, hanging around at the Lincoln Memorial very, very late at night, and Nixon went out with uh, with Haldeman and a couple of others and visited with them, talked about football with them, and people made fun of him, but he approached them, he talked to them. He could have, he could have just shot it, not really shot them. Of course, he would never have done that, but just shouted at them and talk, called them dirty names. He tried to make friends with them. It didn't work very well, but he tried. He tried. He tried. He tried always for a peaceful way. He always tried for a peaceful way, but he did not believe there was any peace possible with the Palestinians. And I remember I had the great privilege of spending time with him by himself in his office at San Clemente, and he went through all the trouble thoughts in the world one day we were talking, and he said, all of them can be solved by this, by this, by this. And then he went to the Palestinians, and he said, I don't know what you can do about them except to hang them all. And, of course, at the time, it seemed like it was kind of shocking thing to say, but he was right. 
Yeah, yeah. You get a loud cheer from Debbie right here on the side. She's been watching all the Hamas videos, so she's right on board and in the mood to carry it out herself <laughs> if she had the chance. Ben Stein, this looks like a great book. I'm excited to read it. It's called The Peacemaker. The website, MrMRBenstein.com. Thank you very much for joining me. God bless you, Dinesh. Have fun. Writing about World War II, Solzhenitsyn writes, In general, this war revealed to us that the worst thing in the world was to be a Russian. And um, he's referring specifically to the Vlasov Regiment, the so-called Russian Liberation Army, that was kind of hoping that World War II would produce a liberation, not just of Russia from the Germans, but also Russia from the Soviets. So this was the peculiar position of the Russian Liberation Army, and unfortunately it never came to pass. It never worked. Ultimately, the Russian Liberation Army was decimated in the war. Essentially, Stalin used them as cannon fodder, to use Solzhenitsyn's own term, and the West betrayed these people. Um, Solzhenitsyn can kind of understand it, and yet I think the full weight of the tragedy falls very much on his shoulders. He says the West simply had to understand that Bolshevism is an enemy for all mankind. In other words, the West never understood in fighting World War II that we have two enemies. We have the Nazis, but we also have the communists. And the Nazis may be the near enemy, maybe that Stalin is an enemy to be taken on after that. Pretty much the only guy who saw this, FDR didn't see it, most Americans didn't see it, Winston Churchill did see it. And Winston Churchill made some statements after the war to the effect that having defeated the Nazis, it may not be a bad idea to keep those armies going and, in a sense, overthrow the despotism of Russia. But I think you have to realize that that was a, that was perhaps a political impossibility. The United States is allied with Russia during the war. I mean, think about it. When we talk about the allies, we're counting not just France, uh, and, uh, and England and the United States, but also Soviet Russia. So is it really feasible? Does it make any sense? Could you actually get away with? Could you pull it off, uh, and overthrow the Soviet empire kind of while you're at it? Um, here's Solzhenitsyn. The democratic West simply could not understand. They could not understand the Russian Liberation Army. They could not understand a Russian force that was allied, even if temporarily, with the Germans. And this is Solzhenitsyn kind of putting on his Western accent. If he were reading this, he would be speaking in a kind of Western accent. What do you mean when you call yourselves a political opposition? An opposition exists inside your country, meaning Russia? Why is it never publicly declared its existence? If you are dissatisfied with Stalin, go back home and in the first subsequent election, do not re-elect him. Gotta say here, Solzhenitsyn is here highlighting the extreme ignorance and naivete of the West, acting as if Stalin even has elections, acting as if there is some internal recourse. Well, why don't you go inside and work for reform within your own country? Well, there's really no way to to do that. Um, and uh, continuing the same uh, kind of mimicked dialogue here, Solzhenitsyn speaking as a Westerner, but well, why did you have to take up arms? And what is worse, German arms? No, we have to extradite you. It would be terribly bad form to act otherwise, and we might spoil our relations with a gallant 
ally. So this is why people in the West and well-meaning people, it has to be said, were like, "Sorry, we can't support the Russian Liberation Army." In fact, if you end up in Allied lines, let's just say as a captured political prisoner of war, we're going to send you back to the Soviet Union, where you are guaranteed to end up in the Gulag. And then Solzhenitsyn pulls back and makes a broad observation. He goes, in World War II, the West kept defending its own freedom and defended it for itself. As for us and as for Eastern Europe, it buried us in an even more absolute and hopeless slavery. So this is the bitter irony of World War II. We often think of World War II as a great victory, and it was a victory, and it was a victory, I guess, even for Soviet Russia, because they successfully repelled the Nazi invasion. They turned the tables on the Nazis. They were ultimately Soviet soldiers in Berlin. But Solzhenitsyn goes, but, but what about for the Russian people? What about for the Russian people who are under Soviet tyranny. Soviet tyranny was actually expanded after World War II. The Soviets before that didn't control Czechoslovakia. They didn't control Hungary. They didn't control East Germany. So all of this fell into Soviet hands at the end of the war, and the Soviets, of course, kept it. So the nearsightedness of the West was condensed in what was written at Yalta. So you know about the Yalta Treaty, it's ultimately where the Allies formally, uh, formally, uh, in a formal way, conceded that the territories occupied by the Soviet Union uh, toward the end of the war would stay under Soviet control. And um, this was Yalta. And, and I think as we look back, uh, it was a kind of an ignominious treaty in which the West, in a sense, sold a whole bunch of people Captive peoples, Poles and, 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 um, and Eastern Germans and Eastern Europeans into a servitude that lasted from 1945 at least until the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. So a whole generation of people, uh, and with lasting effects to this day, uh, allowed to go into captivity with perhaps not the deliberate will but certainly with the acquiescence of the West. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.